Hello and welcome to the PowerWatts podcast. I'm your host, uh, Mark Toskis, PowerWatts coach, and I'm here today with the creator and founder of PowerWatts, uh, exercise physiologist, Paulo Saldana. How are you doing today, Paulo? I'm fantastic, Mark. How are you? I'm fantastic as well. <laughs> it's nice to be fantastic. So many people say that they're doing so bad all the time, you know? You know what's crazy? Did anybody ever tell you that you have an amazing radio voice? Amazing radio voice? <laughs> but you know, it's funny because when I listen to myself talk, when I hear myself voice words come out of my mouth, it sounds okay. But then when I listen back to it, I, I find I don't sound as good. I don't know. I think you might get recruited away from PowerWatts for the radio business. I got to keep my uh, my ears to the ground on that one. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate the uh, the radio voice uh, comment. So anyhow, let's get down to business for today. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today is uh, about the evolution of using power to prescribe training and using power to monitor the intensity at which you cycle outside. So what I first wanted to ask you is. How did you come about using power to begin with? Uh, it's a long story. Um, I guess it all started back in 1988-89 when I was uh, training for my first Ironman. Uh, and I used to work out of the lab uh, at McGill University with my advisor, Dr. David Montgomery, who's, who's now passed away. And um, the interesting thing about uh, power back then is that it wasn't really a tool that was used very much at all except for maybe inside the laboratories. We used to use um, ergometers that measured resistance and work, and we used to prescribe uh, specific protocols based on you know established literature to evaluate athletes. And when I did a bunch of work in the lab, try to sort of understand those mechanisms and how power was really a, a potent way to measure work, um, I really started to think about how maybe I could use this for my own training processes. And um, back then, I actually had been working with Polar uh, as a heart rate measuring athlete for a very, very long time, for at least six or seven years. Um, and uh, I was basically almost addicted to the concept of using heart rate to both monitor and prescribe my training intensities for the Ironman. Uh, and for training for triathlons in general, and also even for things like uh, bike races and, 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 and running races. And what I found was that I would often screw it up, and I didn't really understand why. And I didn't realize that, you know, 145 heart rate today might be 139 tomorrow and might be 152 three days later. What do you the, mean by that? Uh, how would the heart rate vary so, so much? There's a lot of things that impact heart rate, both submaximally and maximally, even though the literature suggests that your maximum heart rate doesn't change. If you look at some of the work done by Zavorsky et al., you'll see that they've published research that shows that heart rate max changes with fitness. And there are a lot of mechanisms that, that play a role in that. But when you look at the potential changes in heart rate with things like uh, the plasma volume that you have, uh, nutrition, fatigue, training status, all those things have a relatively profound impact on heart rate. So take as an example uh, a pacing strategy that I had in the Virginia Marathon that I went down to do and maybe it was 1987. I had established, based on work done on the track, that I was going to hold 148 to 153 heart rate for this marathon. Okay. And I took these variables throughout a six-week period, once a week on the track, at an established pace, at a certain environmental condition. 
at a certain training training uh, status or state. Then I tapered. What happens when you taper? When you taper, you reduce the volume and the load to a degree, sometimes even the intensity. And you, when you reduce the load, you change the amount of fluid in your blood. In fact, you reduce the amount of fluid in your, in your blood. And when you reduce the amount of fluid in plasma in your blood, you reduce the way your heart functions. You change the way your heart functions so that you actually get an increase in heart rate for the same workload that you did two weeks ago before you were tapered. So I went to the Virginia race with my established target and found that for the six-minute mile that I was trying to run for the marathon, that my heart rate was 11 beats higher. And I'm like, something's wrong with me. Wow, that's a I'm huge sick. difference. Something's wrong. But I hung on to it. I hung on to it to the point where I ran a pretty good marathon and didn't understand why I ran that marathon at 10 beats higher than what I had previously determined to be my pace. The point of that story is that heart rate was not an accurate enough indicator. Heart rate was really a downstream representation of the stress I put on my body given the current physiological status that I had. Whereas power is really a direct measurement of the work that you're doing. And because it's so sensitive a, a tool, we can use it to prescribe very, very, very short intervals all the way to extremely long intervals. I'll give you another example of how heart rate can be wrong. The concept of cardiovascular drift means that if I ask you to hold 300 watts for 60 minutes, if you're a strong cyclist and I ask you, Mark, you could probably do that, 300 watts for 60 minutes. What you'll see is that in the third to sixth minute of your uh, time trial of 300 watts, you'll have established a relatively stable heart rate, call it 150 beats per minute. And for the same 300 watts, every 15 minutes, you'll see a two to three heart rate, heartbeat jump up. Whereas, and, and that's, that's gonna tell you that at the end of your 60 minute effort, your heart rate will have gone from 150 to 163. Now, what if I did the exact same exercise and I said, Mark, I know that 150 represents 300 watts from my tests. I want you to hold 150 beats per minute for one hour. And that's going to give you the same result as if you'd hold 300 watts for one hour. What's going to happen? Well, based on what you just described, chances are the watts will go down over time. By the end of the effort, you'll be holding 270 watts. So that's another way that you can show or demonstrate that heart rate is not the best way to use a, prescri a prescription model for athletes. It's not really a good tool because too many variables change it. So is that, I guess that's the reason why you spent all that time in the lab using their ergometer as opposed to using the heart rate monitor for your 1989 Ironman training there? Exactly. So, so the, the transition period between 87 and 89, when I started to doubt uh, the concept of training with a heart rate monitor, I essentially uh, uh, connected with my professor, uh, Dr. Montgomery, again, and, 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 and asked him if I could use the lab. I was a bit of a lab rat to do these critical training sessions using direct measurements, so using the VO2 max uh, oxygen sensor, uh, using a treadmill, and then using an ergometer, uh, a bike ergometer. And then initially it was a bike ergometer, it eventually became a copy trainer. But uh, what I did is I established six workouts of five and a half hours each. Oh boy, and five and a half hours in the lab. In the lab. Wow. And the, what I would do is I would um, 
do a three to three and a half hour ride at uh, about 230 to 250 watts, which was representative of the pace I was going to hold in the Ironman at about 138 pounds. Um, and um, every 30 minutes on the bike, I would do a minimax VO2. So I would connect myself to the O2 analyzer and I would do a protocol of three or four minutes long and we would ramp up super fast to to the point where I would achieve my my max VO2. And you would try to hold that for as long as you could or you'd stop after no, three or four I, minutes? No, it was or? a fixed protocol. So okay. I would I would get as close as I can to the max, three, four minutes, and then it would be over. So we would come back down to the regular pace and then continue to hold the steady state pace. And I did that for three and a half hours on the bike. And then I would get off the bike immediately and run an hour and a half at marathon pace, but do a mini max, VO2 max, every 30 minutes as well throughout that that process. So three mini maxes on the run, and I think it was uh, four or five on the bike, depending so on how much I went. eight of those within your training. Uh... Eight of them within a five and a half hour window. Wow. Well, the first thing is that that was really good training. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm and, sure. And it, it, it created uh, some interesting, uh, it answered some interesting questions. The first one was... I never understood why in an Ironman or a long, long event or even a long bike ride, why at the beginning of the bike ride, the perception of effort to hold 150 beats per minute was significantly different than by the end of the bike ride. And in fact, I was never able to hold a sustainable heart rate for a five-hour ride that I had established in the beginning. So if 135 was my target for a five-hour ride, by the end of that ride, I was 123. And that no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't get to those high heart rates or, or to those regular heart rates, the, the prescribed heart rates. And in the lab, one of the questions I wanted to answer was why? Is there something happening to my max heart rate, to my VO2 max, that is dropping the ceiling in my capacity, therefore not allowing me to hold a sustainable pace? And that's exactly what we found. You know, I might have done a 73 or 74 vo2 max for the first test on the bike and then dropped to 70 and then the third one was 68 and then the fourth one was 66 and then on the run even though your max vo2s are supposed to be higher than the bike i would be struggling to hold a 65 in the vo2 max and then come down to 63 and sometimes my ceiling would drop to 59 wow and during a fresh vo2 max effort what kind of values would you have had 80 around 80 on the run Wow, so that's a 17 uh, difference or even more, 21 uh, difference. The point, though, is that as you do higher-level aerobic exercise in some individuals, at least in my N of 1, your ceiling drops. So it's unrealistic to expect that you can prescribe training based on a heart rate. So you prescribe it based on a power. But here's the thing. Your power ceiling also drops. But your power ceiling drops less than your heart rate. It disconnects from the heart rate. So I just found that power was a great metric to more accurately give me a window of prescription to be able to hold something throughout the course of this Ironman event. And in fact, it was a much better tool. And I used the CompuTrainer as an indoor tool to develop these different training intervals for me for my first Ironman in 1989 in Hawaii. And I just found it way more powerful, pardon the pun, uh, a tool to, to, to use. So that's kind of what got me started in that whole process of using power. And, and the, the genesis of power watts was really those laboratory exercises that really created a, 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 a eureka moment in me that said, wait a second, this is the future of prescriptive training 
for endurance athletes and even for anaerobic power-based athletes. So when you did switch to using power-based training, say you had your compu trainer for your indoor training sessions, how did you establish what kind of power you would you would do for your interval training or for your longer rides? It took a while to kind of understand the whole process. I mean, back then it wasn't like we were, there was a lot of information out there on the mean maximal power curve and everybody's different signature and things like that. So I just basically did a lot of tests on myself. You know, I, I did lactate tests that correlated to power to see how the two were related. I moved away from these direct measurements of VO2 max because they're fairly stable. You know, like I know that at a VO2 max of 50, uh, at a certain power output that 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 relationship is fairly tight unlike the relationship with heart rate which is a little bit slacker so I did all these different tests that you know uh, anything from a 20 minute efforts to up to 60 and 90 and 120 minute efforts but the real favorite of mine was something that's short and hard and a really really good indicator of my top end physiological capacity and that was a 20 minute protocol test that actually all power watts people do today and you'll see that in a lot of the literature people use now and a lot of the software packages people use now are the concept of FTP or functional threshold power. Um, and, you know, I believed in those concepts of the anaerobic power uh, or anaerobic threshold power uh, as, a, as, a, as a key point in a graph that you can hold a sustainable power for up to an hour at this intensity. So but the, the FTP would be the value you can hold for an hour in theory. Exactly, okay. exactly. Uh, but I related more to this uh, CP20 concept because CP20, it's really hard to ask people to do a one-hour time trial on a regular basis. It's a little bit easier to swallow or digest a 20-minute effort. Let me just ask you something. You said CP20. What does, yeah. uh, what does that refer to? Exactly. Well, I mean, it's just it's it's a it's a, a, a the letters that we use at PowerWatts to describe a particular duration and the power that you can hold for that. It's it represents critical power, and really, there's you know there's as many critical powers as there are points on a graph in your own power curve. So uh, it's not critical power in the more classic sense of the word that there's an established critical power that you can hold, let's say, as a threshold power. It's more a con the concept that we use it in is uh, there's a critical power for 30 seconds, there's a critical power for 10 minutes, there's a critical power for 20 minutes, and there's a critical power for an hour. And all those critical powers form a point on the graph that allows us at Power Watts to use to prescribe training for different individuals because everybody's signature of power is like a fingerprint. It's different. They're all a similar pattern, but they have different shapes to them that represent different physiological strengths and weaknesses. So could you give us an example of that to help everybody understand a bit better? So um, if we take an athlete that I've worked with for a number of years now, like a Tori Nyhog, who's a pure BMX uh, World Cup Olympic uh, athlete, who's got a peak power of about 2,600 watts. Wow. Uh, it's about 30 watts per kg. And that's so, on a BMX bike. Uh, that's on a BMX bike, exactly. <laughs> um, and you look at his, the shape of his graph versus a guy like Michael Woods, as an example, who's a climber and an endurance animal with a really big engine. Tori's curve is extremely high, closer to the y-axis, and then dissipates down really, really sharply and has a very flat curve as it goes into the aerobic system. 
So just to clarify, the y-axis would be their watts, and the x-axis would be the time, time. Domain, correct? starting from zero, going on indefinitely. Indefinitely. Okay. Well, probably not indefinitely. That's a whole other discussion. Okay. But uh, <laughs> We'll save that but for another episode. Exactly. Going on for a long time. Um, and so you would have Tories, which have a really, really high power on the very anaerobic spectrum, and a very low threshold power, maybe even as low as 220, 230 watts. Whereas you'd have a guy like Michael Woods, who's much lower on that high power spectrum and much higher on that aerobic and threshold power spectrum. So maybe like a uh, thousand or fifteen hundred watts max power, but a threshold power of four hundred, like four twenty-five in that window. There, mm. it's just uh, it's a different shape that represents a different physiology and a different strength of an attribute of an athlete. Uh, and these are just two different cyclists who I happen to work with that I have data on that I can use as, uh, of, uh, as examples of how these shapes can differ. And when you look at all these differing shapes, you start to realize that the concept that people are now using of prescribing training based on this FTP or functional threshold power, which is based on a one hour effort, is limiting because... If your power shape is so different, take a guy like Tori and a guy like Michael, and you use one data point to prescribe the training that's based on one physiological characteristic, then what's going to happen when you prescribe, based on an aerobic component, an anaerobic intensity? What's going to happen to how hard the sprinter feels this is versus how hard the non-sprinter feels this is? It's going to change entirely. Right, One sure. guy's going to make it, it's going to feel like it's undoable. Another guy's going to feel like this is a walk in the park. So there's an inherent weakness with using a one point on a graph to prescribe training intensity using power with these athletes with different signatures. So let's, let's try to clarify a bit more maybe with an example. So let's say Tori has an FTP of 250 and Michael Woods has an FTP of 400 and you're doing a a 10 second sprint with them and you're doing both of them at like 200% of their FTP. Michael right. Woods would have a hard time and Tori would be pretty pretty easy. I it would guess. be nothing for him. It would be nothing. It'd be no it would not tax his anaerobic system or his neuromuscular system very much at all. So uh, how would you go about fixing that? Like how would you prescribe power for Michael Woods and prescribe power for Tori in a in a reasonable way? Well, there are a few ways, but I think for to keep this conversation uh, relatively simple, I think that the simplest way to describe how I do it would be to manually review the signature of their power curve and to look at these mean, mean F, these maximal efforts, and to use that to guide me in prescribing training. As an example, instead of saying I'm going to give Michael and 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 Tori uh, 10 times 20 seconds based on 200% of their FTP, what I would do is I would go, I'm going to give them 10 times 20 seconds based on 83% of their best 10 seconds, or their best 5 seconds, or their best 20 seconds, uh, depending, of course, on what I want to achieve. So what that does is it frames the intensity around their capacity. And that is much more accurate and much more effective in pinpointing accurate prescription for individual physiologies and phenotypes. So that's kind of what we do. Oh, that uh, sounds like an approach that would be much more reasonable, especially when you're dealing with athletes on such extremes. Unfortunately, there's not any software that exists yet that accurate re accurately allows us to be able to 
use like a multi-prescriptive model, but I hear they're on the way, they're coming. Oh, well, I'd be very excited to see one of those softwares set up. So in the PowerWatts environment, how do you go about offering different prescriptions based on say CP 20 minutes, like you mentioned earlier, we use that, use that at PowerWatts. How would you then prescribe say a sprint set to, to people? Well, I mean, uh, it's kind of the same thing. Uh, what we would do is try and use a percentage. That's why we've had, uh, you know, guys like you and Nick build us tools to be able to go and look for um, clients' best performances, you know, sometimes in 10 or 30 seconds or one minute to try and give clients an idea as to what their best minute might be. And sometimes we prescribe based on that best one minute or best 30 seconds or best five seconds. And it's, it's, it's done a little bit. Uh, it's a little bit more complicated because it's not always automatic. There's a few steps to that process, but that's really the best way, and that's kind of what we've tried to do. Unfortunately, it's not entirely automatic just yet. So you would just basically look up just the same way you did for Michael Woods and for Tor. You'd just look up what their best five-second power is or 10-second power and say, okay, let's do 80% of this uh, type of thing? Exactly, and the hard part is that uh, you know, as coaches – Everybody's really anchored to this whole FTP model or paradigm. And um, if you're anchored to that, then it's really hard to understand the, the percentages that you're supposed to use as, 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 as guidelines for prescribing anywhere else along the power curve. It's really hard because you don't have the experience of selecting that. And what I've done over the last decade of my life is I've done it manually in every single athlete, in every single case of people I work with. So I've come to learn what is reasonable and what is not almost intuitively because of through a process of trial and error, I've worked with this manual searching of the power curve and then attempting certain percentages. And some I've screwed up and said, oh my God, I burned his legs on that one. That didn't work. Uh, this one worked better. And to some degree, we use the concept of W prime to guide us. We'll discuss the concept of W prime in another episode, but we use the, the, the measure of how much we're emptying their anaerobic capacity, how many matches they have left in their legs to guide us. But in the beginning, it was all about how many anaerobic power bursts can this particular person survive that results in an optimal stimulus. And that was all done manually, and uh, it's, it's, it's a long process. But if we can develop eventually a way to guide these, uh, these coaches with sort of you know, 10 or 15 options of if you're going to be prescribing based on a five-second power output, then here are your six best options in terms of intensities, work to rest, uh, that we suggest. And you can modify them. Uh, same thing applies for one-minute efforts or 20-minute efforts or even 60-minute efforts. So, uh, you know, th that whole concept of the power curve, I think, needs to be rethought because we, as especially myself, as, as a kind of a, a guy who comes from a sports science background, you know, you're taught in graduate school to put things in boxes. The whole concept of training zones is based on that. Why do we have training zones? Well, because it's a nice, neat box that to some degree is sometimes representative of a certain physiological system. But if you put something in a box, then there's, there's an assumption of linearity in that box. But what you're putting in a box is not linear. It's, 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 it's changing its slope even in that box. 
So what if you're at the low end of the box versus the high end of the box? Well, they represent different things. They're a different stress, a different load. So why give them a box? Why not just prescribe based on a time domain, a 5-second interval, a 10-second interval, a 30-second interval, a 90-second interval, a 33-second interval, a 45-second interval? It's, it's limitless what you, can, you, what you can prescribe based on if you have all of that mean maximal power curve to work with. And that's the power of that is incredible because you can develop all kinds of different guidelines for different parts of that curve. So, so let's say we were able to do the ability to look at a particular part of the power curve and prescribe training on that. What would be the benefits for somebody that might be interested in more, say, endurance-oriented events? Why would they want to be doing things based on 30-second power as opposed to 20-minute power or 60-minute power? Well, that speaks to a whole other underlying fundamental belief as to how to train. So, I mean, there are groups that believe that um, if you're an endurance-based athlete, then it's rare the, the, the times that you actually go to these short-term intervals to work on that anaerobic power. You're predominantly endurance, therefore you train predominantly endurance. So I'm not sure if that's what you were asking. I think that what you were saying is that why would a guy who's an endurance athlete use this 30 seconds? Uh, and I would say that if he believes that or he or she believes that, they should be training endurance, then they probably wouldn't use these 30-second interval prescriptors. But at power watts, we sort of believe in this concept of this, this, this pull training rather, push tra rather than push training. Push training is more you take everything underneath the power curve and you try and push it up. So you're always training below your capacity, hoping your capacity goes higher? Exactly. So that's rooted in these historically significant ideas of building the aerobic machinery to be able to allow for higher workloads. Uh, but what happens is, is eventually you need to stimulate the system to be able to tolerate heavy workloads. Uh, and, and if you don't ever do that, then you're probably going to plateau. So what, what we do at PowerWatch is we take this pull philosophy and we start from above, everything above this power curve, Obviously, you can't be above your peak power and you can't be above your 30-second power and above your one-minute power. But what I'm saying is you start above the aerobic zones and you use above those aerobic zones to actually pull up your power across that, that whole curve. It's a different philosophy. And I'm not saying that it should be a philosophy that everyone adapts. But I do know that in 20 or 22 years of, of experiencing this and testing it on thousands of individuals that in people who are pressed for time, who have limited availability for conditioning, two, three, four, six, eight hours a week, that the, this, this model that is predominantly a high intensity model is much more effective than the lower intensity model that works in that, in that push method rather than the pull me method. And even with athletes that I work with now, the elite athletes, my modeling for them is very, very different than their peers. It's very high intensity based uh, because they, although they do need more endurance work than the average person at power watts, they also need to stimulate their system much at a much, much higher work rate than a lot of individuals out there because they're so riding on the edge of their potential that it's like a lemon that's been squeezed a thousand times and it's sitting there on your counter for two days and you come along and you have to put a million pounds of force <laughs> to get one drop out of it over two years. That is how you have to get an athlete to improve 
And the way that I have found most effective to do that is by using a bunch of different tactics, many of them rooted in the high-intensity high model rather than in the low-intensity model. So I guess a, as a brief summary, so somebody that might be just starting out, they might be able to get away with doing a lot of just aerobic training and see benefits, but as they start to reach closer and closer to their potential, it becomes more and more important to add these components of higher intensity training in an intelligent way? Yes and no. Just starting out with limited time, still better to go for the high intensity model. S starting out with a lot of time, like a junior or, or an athlete that still needs to build that metabolic machinery, uh, probably better to have a block of, you know, four years of where you actually transition away from that bigger aerobic engine building work to the more anaerobic power work and more pull work. So it takes a while, and some people it may take eight years. It depends on the physiological characteristic of every individual, and then it depends on their response rate. We have high responders and low responders and non-responders, you know. So that's the beauty of coaching is that it's a riddle in every athlete, you know, and some have a big aerobic engine and don't respond very well to intensity. Some have a big aerobic engine and respond super well to intensity and horribly to endurance. And the way that you learn these things is through a process of trial and error to see how they respond. And you measure that response. And then you try and add as many layers to that response as possible to really get them to get that last drop of lemon <laughs> out of things. And what would you say to the person that would be concerned about getting into a state of overtraining or physically taxing themselves too much by doing these anaerobic by doing this anaerobic work well there's a couple of things to that i mean uh, if you're talking just about power watts people then the typical power watts athlete trains twice a week and in that two hours total of riding they have a warm-up and a cool-down period probably representing about 25 to 30 percent of the workout and then in there they have a middle set that is sometimes anywhere between 20 30 maximum up to 40 minutes but around 20 to 40 minutes, typically about 25 to 30 minutes. And that's including recovery. So there's recovery in that process. So when you measure the total of time, the total time under load or the total work, really it's 20, 25 minutes. Uh, and I've never in my career seen somebody burn out or over fatigue or not handle two times a week of 20 to 25 minutes of intensity-based training. And the beautiful thing about power watts is that it's variable intensity training. We're not always, it's not polarized in the sense that it's five second intervals or it's 30% of your threshold. It's a mixed matrix of every different kind of interval. Sometimes many different intervals mixed together in the same workout because that is something that people respond to very well, not just physically, more importantly, psychologically. What is the single, I'll ask you a question, Mark. What is the single biggest uh, hurdle to indoor training. Oh, it's boring. Exactly. Endurance training by nature, unless you're extremely motivated, is quite boring. And imagine you being in your basement or in a group riding one hour at 60% of your threshold or an hour and a half or two hours. Oh, man, that would be brutal. So we actually have developed these intervals that are designed to keep the client engaged, motivated, challenged, and have the coaches be able to do the same thing with them. And 
that creates what I call a stickiness factor, which helps with client adherence because they feel like they're totally motivated by it and challenged by it, and they improve. So all those things, you know, there's a difference between what a PowerWatts client might want to experience and what my work is with the elite athletes. Mm-hmm. There's two different animals there. But if it's PowerWatts you're talking about, no doubt I would not worry about overdoing it with intensity-based training twice a week, even three times a week with our system. And uh, so we're coming up close to time here, Paul, but let me ask you one more question. So let's say we have a listener at home that's currently training based on FTP. What would be two or three suggestions that you'd give to them to allow them to better train based on some of the things we've discussed today? Join PowerWatts. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So let's imagine that that's not an option. But if you are near a PowerWatts center, come try us out. You'll really enjoy our our training protocols. Yeah, so the first thing I would say to them is that... uh, um, I'd have to look at their power curve to see where the, 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 the holes are, but that they would, ha- I would recommend that they would look at their, if they're using power to train, that they would look at their power curve and try and evaluate whether they feel they're more skewed for uh, sprinting, lead out or endurance based riding, and then compare that to their objective. Let's say, for example, their objective is to enter a criterium. Uh, and then, you know, they have weak anaerobic power, then I would say to them that they need to focus on that higher part of the power curve by doing intervals that are going to challenge that anaerobic system. So that would be 20-second intervals, 30-second intervals? Anywhere from five all the way to one minute. Five seconds all the way to one minute. So in that window, it would help them to um, um, be able to sustain repeated anaerobic capacity in in a race that they may want to do especially if it's a weak link you know and and what happens with sometimes with people is that it's it's hard for them to work on their weaknesses because they everybody wants positive reinforcement so if you're good aerobically then you're going to be happy with anything above five minutes all the way to 60 minutes so you're going to be mashing away in your basement at things that you're good at when you really should be focusing on the things that are holding you back so that's what I would recommend, to take a hard look at that. I wouldn't give prescript, uh, specific intervals as an example just because everybody would be, diff- would be different, but I would say that they should start, if they're going to use anaerobic, anaerobic intervals, that they should start at the lower intensity of those anaerobic intervals and to slowly build the intensity and also to slowly build the number of reps at that intensity so they have a, a, a matchbook capacity in their legs that's greater than when they started the process okay so to just look closely at where their weaknesses might be along their their power curve and try to target those areas exactly exactly if they're using something like ftp that would probably be inappropriate for if they're doing 30 second intervals so let's say they might look at their best 30 second power and try to improve that or try to do repetitions at say 80% of that or something along exactly if they you know there's capacity intervals which would mean that if you really want to improve that high-end 30 second range you do a lot less of them you may only do three or four capacity intervals with a 10 minute break but you're doing them at 93 to 98 percent trying to bust that new record uh, versus the the repeatability of those anaerobic intervals might be anywhere between 80 and 85 percent with a little bit less recovery or a lot less recovery you may do 60 to 70 percent but only 15 seconds recovery you know there's a lot of ways that you can play with the work and rest ratio to really stimulate the body to survive 
short efforts with a lot of recovery and short efforts with not a lot of recovery and short efforts that are very high intensity for the finish line. And especially in a race like a Criterium, you want to have all those skill sets uh, established. Exactly, exactly. Okay, well, that sounds like some very interesting advice. I'm sure our listeners at home will be able to implement that. Within our PowerWatts classes, we try to add all these different types of intervals and components based on different durations to develop a well-rounded cyclist. But those of you at home, nothing is stopping you from doing it other than just a little bit of an imagination and trying to think a little bit outside the box. Well, uh, I appreciate uh, the time today, Paulo. I think we had a a good podcast. Uh, Any last remarks you want to make before we cut it down for today? I think, uh, no, it's been a great podcast. Uh, please don't leave us, Mark, to the radio uh, radio <laughs> industry. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Paulo. And thank you for listening to the Power Watts podcast. We'll be back on again shortly with our next episode.